You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Meredith Yeager uh, with me on the show. We're talking about her brand new book, The Pilot's Daughter. And if you love historical fiction the way that we do here at Author Stories, um, you know that uh, this is the this is the kind of book that really um, you know gets me and, uh, and and Dawn and some of the other folks at the show here really excited. And but this book is so much more than the typical. Um, historical fiction that you see, and uh, we're going to talk all about that today. But what an amazing blend of a couple of different subgenres, which really make this book stand out and make the reading experience really stand out. Uh, welcome to the show, Meredith. Thank you so much, Hank. Um, Meredith, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is: What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? That's a great question. Um, I loved writing ever since I was a little girl, and my mom is great about saving everything. So um, I found, or she showed me, this little book I had illustrated and stapled together called The Midnight Journey. And it was um, a mouse named Angelina Whiskers had gone missing in the middle of the (laughs) night. And um, I loved, I loved drawing. And, um, you know, we um, did not have a lot of television in the house. So my mom and dad really pushed my sister and I to be creative, you know, play outside, draw, make up stories. So without video games, without TV, um, storytelling was, you know, a big way to entertain ourselves. So I loved writing and illustrating stories. Um, I found another one I wrote when I was 11 that was kind of dark and creepy, where this girl gets (laughs) washed away in the ocean and then drowns. I'm like, gosh, that was a dark one for a (laughs) fifth grader. Um, So I've always, always loved to write. Well, at least it wasn't uh, Angelina Whiskers, uh, you know, <laughs> coming up with a human trap. You know, that would, <laughs> yeah, that that would be kind of dark. But uh, <laughs> yeah. well, I love that Meredith, and I love that you have a very specific memory. Um, you know, of of kind of what that time felt like for you. Yeah. Um, you know, I I talked to um talk to a lot of writers. We have uh, our 1200th episode coming up soon. Oh, and, wow. um, you know, when you ask that question to people, you get 1200 different answers, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and some people, and, and I'll, I'll just say it this way. Most people um, have felt like that, that, that they have been writers their whole life or storytellers, yes. you know, and there's, it's, it's a gene. It's, you know, something in our makeup that just, you know, makes you who you are. On, on rare occasion, uh, I've met people who said, well, you know, I never even thought of writing a book until I was 40 years old, you know, or whatever. And <laughs> yeah. some, you know, dramatic life experience happened. Um, but out of those people, that that ma- vast majority of people who, you know, feel like that they've always, you know, destined to do this, if you want to use that kind of language. Um, but very few of those people 
um, writing has been a singular pursuit. Um, I, I've met a few people who said, you know, I knew I was going to be a novelist and therefore I went to college and I pursued creative writing only right. with a goal toward, um, you know, this being my, my end goal. And um, it, most people uh, you know, life has a way of kind of getting in there and, you know, you get consumed with having a family and, you know, having a career and paying bills and all yes. that. <laughs> and then writing comes back around, you know, at some point. What was that? What was that journey like for you? That is, you know, such an important, um, you know, point, because for so many of us, we love writing, but unfortunately, it's not the career you think of when it's <laughs> financial stability, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I well, and it's one a, of those things that that you can't, uh, you know, say six months from now I'm going to be a right. successful exactly. writer who makes plenty of money. It, it yeah, just doesn't yeah. work that way for most people. Yeah, so I always did love it. Um, I had I did the modern literature major in college. Um, and I think I would have done the creative writing focus, but then I chose to study abroad in the Netherlands, um, which would have conflicted with the major. And I had so much fun on that year abroad. I don't regret it. Um, but yeah, after college, you know, I ended up teaching English as a second language. I think, um, you know, with a lot of literature majors, it's um, you end up doing something more practical. So I was in the ESL field for a long time. And then um Growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's a lot of um, startups and tech companies. So I shifted to working in tech um, in customer support. And I was always, always writing, you know, on weekends, on nights. Um, my first serious novel with the intent of publication, I started in 2009. Um, and I think... I must have accumulated probably 200 rejection letters from agents for that one. And um, it was disheartening, but um, it just inspired me to try harder and to improve my craft and meet critique partners who would push me. Last night, I had a super fun Zoom launch with my friend Sally Hepworth, who's a New York Times bestselling Australian author. But I met her through this blog I was keeping back, you know, in the day um, where we were both aspiring authors and and would talk about writing and querying agents. Um, and it was fun to go from that point to making it happen. But ultimately, I had to write three novels um, to get one published. So, yeah, just like you said, I was working full time and then. I never thought it would take until my mid 30s. So, you know, then I ended up starting my family. And um, so, yeah, my first, my debut, The Dressmaker's Dowry, came out in 2017. My daughter was five months old. <laughs> From 2009 <laughs> to 2017 is a long, long journey. So, yeah, I did not think I was going to be a mom. And in my mid 30s, when I had started this with the serious goal of publication as like a 20 something, you know, but um, it is what it is. Dreams don't always happen I, on your timeline. <laughs> I, I love that story because it is so real. It, yes. it is so real. Um, I, I definitely want to ask you about um, that third novel being the one uh, that you got published. But yeah. before I do, um, what what led you to to want to study in the Netherlands? You know, a, a lot of people want to go abroad and 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 study. And you know, I, I think you know people want to go to France or Italy or yeah. Um, why the Netherlands? That 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 kind of jumped out at me. Yeah. So um, this is funny. My uh, my family's from Switzerland, okay. um, and so I uh, grew up, you know, visiting Switzerland a lot, visiting my um, aunts and uncles and cousins. Um, the Swiss speak Switzerdeutsch, uh, which is like Swiss German. So I learned. German in school, um, 
And my German was at a level where I would have had to do all my studies in German. And I was so immature at, you know, 20 that I thought, oh, my God, that sounds too hard. And the Netherlands offered um, a fully English uh, year abroad. And so I was able to take these amazing literature classes in English because the Dutch speak perfect English. And it was my own laziness of not wanting to have to actually <laughs> write and compose college level essays in German. <laughs> so, yeah. I love that very honest answer. That, that's <laughs> but I amazing. loved it. The Netherlands is gorgeous. Amsterdam is gorgeous. I met some of my closest friends on that year abroad. Um, we're so old. It, it It is shocking to me that that was almost 20 years ago because that was one of the best periods of my life, honestly. I'll bet it was. <laughs> I'll bet it was. Um, you write historical fiction now, and uh, all of your uh, books that you publish don't necessarily have a World War II focus. The Pilot's Daughter definitely has a World War II connection. Um, but your time in the Netherlands, um, d- did you um, did you think about World War II while you were there? Or um, I, I guess, you, you know, being in America, we have uh, very – particular views um our 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 thoughts and our our memories and our study um is from a very particular perspective of of historical events especially like world war ii and big events like that um but being in the netherlands i would imagine that their perspective on it their the 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 vantage point that they have would be very different from ours maybe uh maybe some of the the big elements of it are are similar but um you know we fought a war uh, from thousands of miles away. You know, that World War II didn't come to our uh, to our shores. Uh, we went somewhere else to fight. Um, did, did you encounter any of that when you were in the Netherlands, or was that still uh, to be in the future? That was to be in the future. Uh, like I said, I was so young. You know, my my interests were were different back then. It was more focused on socializing and, you know, traveling. But um, I did, of course, visit the Anne Frank Museum and it was, you know, very, very moving, very sobering. Um, But yeah, it wasn't until um, I would say being an adult and uh, my sister lives in Berlin now. So I visited her in Berlin in um, 2019 and there's a product called um, Stolpersteine, which means stumbling stones. And they are, um, plaques, brass plaques in the ground in the cobblestones inscribed with the name of every Holocaust victim in front of the home where they used to live. And so it's incredibly moving because you see um, what age they were deported, uh, where they died, when they died, their names. And and you see, you know, this was a residential neighborhood and these are the families who lived here and who were taken from their homes. So, yeah, I mean, my interest in um, in, in history I think definitely grew with um, with age, you know, sure. in my early 20s, I just wanted to have fun and go to the nightclubs and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> go dancing. <laughs> I, I understand that. Um, you, I, I told you a minute ago that I would come back to that third novel. Um, did, did I understand you right that you wrote two novels that were not published and then your third novel, um, I'm assuming, uh, was The Dressmaker's Diary? Did, did I understand yes. that right? You understood so, it, yes. Okay, what what happened with those other two novels? Did, will they ever see the light of day? No, they won't. And um, I think that it's okay. You know, um, some 
I, I need everyone to know the word debut means the first novel you've you've ever published. It does not mean the first novel you've ever written. Of course, and many right. many authors have stories like mine. Um, so they were in a different genre, you know. Um, I used to be a pantser, which is a term where you fly by the seat sure. of your pants, as opposed to a plotter. Um, so I had pantsed that novel, and um, it was all over the place. It was called The Trouble with 22, and the characters were 22. And um, yeah, even after working on it with my critique partner, you know, it hurt so much to shelve it. But um, eventually I did. Then I thought, okay, I'll write more traditional women's fiction. So I was writing in a different genre, just modern day um, and then that novel got slightly closer with, you know, more agent requests, um, but ultimately rejections. I think I gave up after about 50, uh, you know, rejected queries. Um, so when I started The Dressmaker's Dowry, I'd been working for this um, tech startup, just long, long hours. It was so stressful. Um, and then had taken a year off writing and it was on my Greek honeymoon that I actually had the time and the space to write. And so it's funny that, you know, there I was on this beautiful Greek island writing about like gritty Victorian San Francisco. But, um, you know, it was I, I was reading some dual narrative fiction back then where there was a story set in the past and one in the present. And that was the first time where I thought, well, what if I can do this? Like, just be brave, try a new genre, just try it. And then that was the one that um, that ultimately sold. So I think, yeah, it's a combination of improving your craft timing and luck because what you're writing doesn't always align with the market you know and no one knows what the market's going to shift to you just have to write what you love and hope that someone else loves it too right dabble is a proud sponsor of author stories dabble is an easy to use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize plot and create amazing stories wherever they are Write in our desktop app on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com I, I talked with an author um, last week, I think it was, and she told me about um, this amazing debut novel that she had. And um, it had been 
you know, the better part of 15 years in the making and, um, and, you know, just the, the journey that this book had had. And I remember asking her, well, you know, are there other novels? Was this the first one that you wrote that then became published? And she said, yes, that was, this was the, the only book that she focused on. And I just, I marveled because, um, most people don't have that story. Most people are like you. They try something. It didn't work for for whatever reason. And then, um, you know, they they pivot and they eventually pivot to the right place and, and with the right idea and the right book. And, you know, maybe their writing skill becomes better and, you know, all of the different factors. Um, but most people go through you know, at least a couple of different story ideas before they hit on the one that becomes the one um, that I, I just find it interesting and intriguing the, the, um, you know, the, the, the mindset, the motivation that uh, would make you stick with one thing. Um, did when, when you kind of realized that those two early books weren't, weren't it, um, you know, did, did you ever, uh, kind of mourn uh, the loss of those stories because you know when oh, you write definitely. a book, you spend a long time with those characters yes. and those settings, yes. and, and they kind of become part of who you are. Uh, how do you move on from something that is right. not the right thing? No, the first one I really mourned, and um, I had put so much heart into it, and I really did, you know, bond with both of those characters. Um, but I had started studying the market at that point, and so 2009 was the Twilight craze, and everything was paranormal and vampires. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, this isn't what what agents are are looking for. Now there's actually a new genre, um, I think it's called new adult, where that book would have fit into. But at the time, um, agents kept saying, you know, these characters are 22, it's not YA, it's not women's fiction, it doesn't have a place. Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, uh, it's it's a tough it's a tough question you know because there's multiple avenues of publishing i knew i wanted to be traditionally published but someone else might say you know what i believe in this story i'm going to self publish or i'm going to try a small press like there are so many different options now um right. i think it was just my commitment to traditional publication and really wanting it to happen that way where i saw okay I've been trying with this book for for long enough and accumulated enough rejection letters that like I'm not going to get an agent for this one and I really want a literary agent so I'm going to keep writing until I you know connect with that agent and um I've been fortunate enough to be with my amazing agent Jenny Bent this whole time you know a lot of people um shift and and switch and drop agents and have conflict and whatnot um but i'm just so happy that i held out for the right person and it's been a great journey so far what what, i'm glad you brought that up meredith um what role does a good agent play for a writer um you know the the obvious answer is well you know they help get your book out to the market and to to publishers um but i feel like a good agent is more than that um definitely and, and and you're absolutely right that um, self-publishing or indie publishing, as we uh, maybe like to call it these days, is is absolutely a viable um, way to get your story out to the world. And, and there are lots and lots of people that have built very successful publishing careers, publishing very good books um, and doing it all themselves. So, so that that's absolutely viable. And and this is not a conversation about which is best. Um, right. But, but I would love to, to hear from you about what role um, a good agent plays. 
Yeah, so um, an agent's main role is um, they are the only ones who can submit to the big houses. So like, um, you know, Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, uh, Macmillan, they won't accept unagented submissions. So that's, you know, role number one is there the um, the <laughs> the reason, the way you can get there. But um, no, a good yeah. agent. I knew I wanted an editorial agent, someone to bring me to the next level, someone to make my writing even better. Um, so when I queried Jenny with um, with the dressmaker's dowry, she responded with what is known as a revise and resubmit. And so she said, hey, like, I really like the premise of this story. I see a lot of potential, but I, you know, want to see if you would be willing to make these revisions um, before I would consider taking you on as a client. Um, sometimes when people receive these letters, if the revisions don't align with their vision for the story, they just don't do them. And sometimes doing them is no guarantee that the agent's going to sign you. It's a kind of a really right. scary test. Um, but I was so excited when given this opportunity and I did like Jenny's vision. Um, she liked the historical story, but she wanted more um, higher stakes in the modern story. Um, so I worked pretty hard on those revisions sent it back to her and then just didn't hear anything for probably five months and I was so nervous. And I'll never forget the day I got the phone call. I was working at a different tech company, downtown San Francisco, you know, customer support. And um, I just, she called me in Pete's. I was waiting in line for a morning coffee and I just about screamed and, you know, everybody in there was like, what's wrong with this woman? But, uh, you know, when she said, yes, I, I love these revisions. I want to sign you as a client. Um, it made me so happy. So a good agent, a good editorial agent will really push you in terms of plot, in terms of character development, in terms of everything. Um, and Jenny is, is that. So with every book, before we go on submission, um, you know, we we have tons of, of line notes and, you know, conversations. And so she's she's in there with the red ink, with the track changes um, saying, you know, deepen this or this isn't working, you know, raise the stakes um, or even tiny things with dialogue. Like in this book, um, I had to eliminate he said and she said there's no said it's all described in the tone of the voice. Like um, he sounded like he'd swallowed a fistful of rocks. So there's all these little <laughs> tips and tricks that your agent will teach you to elevate your writing. Um, and also they're your cheerleader. They're your advocate. Um, you know, books sometimes don't sell and it's so heartbreaking. And in that case, you want your agent to be just as heartbroken as you are because they were also a champion of this story. So ideally someone who's, um, you know, yeah, your, your advocate, you're in there together for the long haul. <laughs> yeah. Um, Meredith, one of the things that I love to talk about and, and uh, questions I love to ask people is um, the I'm, I'm fascinated with the beginnings of things, um, the, the moment of birth uh, for a book at, at one moment in time, the pilot's daughter did not exist in any form, fashion that the, it just it didn't exist. And then either you started thinking about a character and, uh, you know, started, you know, envisioning things for for this character to get into. Or maybe you, you know, run across a, a story that um, that you start playing the what if game with and, and then you cast characters for that what if game in your mind. And then, you know, wh whatever that first moment of inspiration is, then the pilot's daughter does exist. And then, uh, you know, in, in its in, – 
very uh, infant form. And then you, as the writer, it's your job to kind of excavate that story and dig it out of the dirt and, you know, uh, polish it. And 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 then, you know, it becomes the thing that it is today. What was that first moment of inspiration for you? I love that. That description is so good. Um, so I like to read um, both within my genre and outside of genre. So when I'm not reading historical, I love psychological suspense. So where it really started was I had read um, The Last Mrs. Parrish, which is um, domestic suspense, you know, oh, set yeah. in modern day. And there's um, the Constantine sisters. Yes, yes. So there's a big twist in that book. And I just I loved this idea of what if someone who presents so well on paper seems like the perfect, you know, gentleman is not who they seem. And I, I like, you know, bringing I wanted to bring an element of suspense into historical fiction. So I thought, OK, can I find um, a 1920s cold case 1920s, you know, true unsolved mystery that I can incorporate and then start with those what if questions. So I found the actual true unsolved cold case of um, the Broadway butterfly, Dorothy King, who was a flapper um, who was murdered um, and $15,000 worth of jewels and furs were stolen from her apartment. And then the media just went wild. This became a national news story where she had been dating um, various, you know, high profile married wealthy people and um and they were all suspects in the murder case and so um she's not a major character in the book she's a minor character but she does kick it off and so i thought what if you know someone knew her what if someone um was in this situation like a bad um you know romantic situation in which they needed to escape and so i started building Iris's story where um, I did a lot of research into the Ziegfeld Follies and um, her friends in the novel are real. So Hilda Ferguson was an actual um, Ziegfeld Follies girl who was friends with Dorothy King and who gave interviews in the paper. Um, Louise Lawson was another Follies girl. So I just, you know, went deep into this world of um, Broadway, loved the gorgeous historic photos by um, Alfred Cheney Johnston of these you know, women looking so glamorous. And um, and then, yeah, that was um, that element. And then I thought, OK, I always do dual narrative. But this time, instead of having a modern story, I want another historic story to be the other um, narrative. So that's how I came up with Iris's niece, Ellie. Um, and the um, I was writing it during the pandemic. And so I really related to, like you said, you know, America, all of the the death and destruction was happening overseas. We were kind of removed from it. Um, but still, those were family members that that pain of, of being home and not being on the front lines um, just felt so real to me at the time being in lockdown and knowing that all this this death is happening outside unseen and it's really scary and just trying to do your part as an individual while, you know, doctors and nurses are on the front lines. Um, so I really kind of bonded with with Ellie's character and these war restrictions. Um, and then I actually, you know, the grief was personal for me because I was very close with my own father. And then he died from cancer when I was 14. Um, so I just, you know, channeled a lot of that into um, this this pain of, you know, her father's missing in action. She doesn't know what happened to him, but um you know, that that father daughter bond. And um, as you know, then it gets <laughs> more complicated. But those were um, those were the initial beginnings of the story. 
that that is fascinating and um i I love the dual narrative um but the fact that both of the narratives are historical um i i loved uh because you know the uh the kind of the default setting for a lot of dual narrative uh books today are a a modern present day story and then you know we're we're solving a mystery or something from world war ii and and that that's a very common thing that's that's happened um but i loved that that we've got two historical timelines and and um I, i thought that was um very unique and 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 really made the book um but one thing that that i love about this story is that um the the dual timelines both happened long before i was born um but your use of description and and maybe this was part of the the thing that you talked about that um uh, with you and your agent but elevating the uh the 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 dialogue and and you're just um your your writing style in particular but you have a a really unique way of making me feel like I am there without just beating me over the head with description, uh, you know, because sometimes you read a book and the description is so um, it, it just gets uh, wearisome, you know, yeah. like, like I really need to know um, uh, about the buttons, you know, on right, this code. Right. you know, the, the third page of, of, you know, the buttons is, is really kind of wearing <laughs> on me. Yeah. Um, but, but you give me enough to make me feel like I'm there and to make it feel authentic without me without breaking the um um the the spell you know if you will um how do you how do you approach um kind of the immersion of the story while keeping it uh keeping your modern sensibilities as a as a storyteller if that makes sense no thank you so much um i go deep into my research initially so i was reading um this oral history of new york called You Must Remember This, where um, they had recorded interviews with um, people who were alive in the 1800s and 1920s. So it was very important to me to read about each borough and what the um, ethnic demographics and like socioeconomic demographics were like so that I could make it authentic. Um, And I was watching a lot of old YouTube footage in black and white of like the the L train. And, um, you know, I couldn't travel and I haven't been to New York since I was 22. So it was all library research. It was so important for me to make it feel authentic. Um, But I have to credit my agent and my editors for paring down the detail because I, just like everyone else, I'm guilty of writing, you know, pages of description because there's just so much to include. But um, one of the things I have learned through my agent and through my editor is, um, you know, keep the story moving forward. And so if you have too much and you get bogged down, it takes away from that page turning quality. So um, I think it's, yeah, just keeping, keeping the right details. And um, gosh, I don't know, I I think I'm a visual learner. And whether I'm reading, um, you know, a biography of Ziegfeld or, or going on Pinterest and looking at um, clothing from the 1920s, like, I just want to include it all. So it's um, picking the right details to keep. And um, there were just there were just so many good ones. You know, I, I don't know, I love The Great Gatsby. I love Boz Lerman. His movies are so incredibly like visual. Um, and so yeah, it's just wanting to um, put those visuals on the page. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I love, uh, uh, Meredith, is that this you've, you've really um, 
combined genres in a in a really unique way and i hope that this means that we're going to see more historical fiction that that delves a little uh, more into mystery and 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 thriller and um you know the we there's a uh, I, I just love the way that you're stretching the genre. Um, do you um, – was that – I know that you said uh, earlier that you used to be a pantser and now you're a plotter. Were, were yes. these things <laughs> that you were thinking about in the planning of the book? You know, I, I really want to um, you know, play up the mystery. I really want this to read like a, like a detective novel in, in a lot of places. Um, were, were those things that you were thinking about in the planning stages? Yes, definitely. And um, I appreciate that so much because I think um, as writers, you know, if you're a good writer, you want to push the boundaries. You read a book by by someone else that's so inspiring and you're simultaneously jealous and inspired. And so um, I, you know, I I did want to play up the tension and play up the mystery. Um, I always know my energetic markers beforehand. So like the end of the beginning or the inciting incident will be the catalyst that sort of gets the ball rolling, gets the story started. Um, the crisis, some big dramatic moment at the midway point, the climax, you know, bigger dramatic moment at the 75% mark. Um, so I, I write these down, I plot these out. So I knew what those would be for Ellie and Iris beforehand. And um, yeah, I absolutely wanted to um, have it suspenseful, have it tense, have it involve, you know, murder, which is why I had the true unsolved um, murder mystery in there. And so, um, yeah, you know, it's uh, I think I'm drawn to those kind of dark elements. But anyone who reads my stories knows that I also, um, you know, like to incorporate romantic elements and it's not it's not entirely dark like it's also a family story and a generational story and there's some love in there you know not necessarily romantic yeah. love but self-love and the father-daughter love love between a niece and her aunt so it's a yeah a mixture like you said yeah um the uh the, i i got an arc of the book and and i and i read it and loved it and uh i I now see that it's available in an audiobook as well. Um, have you heard the audiobook? Oh my gosh, not the whole thing, just clips. I'm so excited. Yeah, I, I um I'm excited to listen to this because I yeah. really want to hear what a what a great narrator brings to this story. Um, you know, now that audiobooks have really become a super growth market and and audiobooks are nothing new, you know, they've been around since books on tape and, and all of that, but there really has been an explosion in in adoption of audiobooks and and probably you know, um, uh, smartphones and all that have have definitely played into that. Um, but it, are audiobooks something that you think about in in the writing and planning of a book at all, or is that just um, you know something that happens on the publication side? No, it's just something that happens on the publication side. So I'm just you know writing it in my word document as it's meant to be read um and i don't think about it but then with each publisher i've had they um send me samples of voice actors and i get to choose and so that's the the fun part that's my little bit of input but um no i never think of it being read in anyone else's voice i think most authors as they're writing just hear their characters voices in their mind you know and then you try to choose the narrator who you think most closely can embody that character 
Well, The Pilot's Daughter is available everywhere now. You can grab it in Kindle edition or paperback uh, if you want to hold it in your hand and then display it proudly on your bookshelf when, <laughs> when you're done. Oh, or audiobook, as we mentioned. Uh, we're going to have links to it in the show notes of this episode where you can grab it in any format that you choose and that you enjoy reading in. Meredith, this is this is seriously one of my favorite books of the fall, and uh, I'm recommending it to everyone. Uh, you know, we're, we're coming up on the gift-giving season and uh you know uh, i think this would be a fantastic gift for the book lover in your life uh thank you so much for taking time to come on the show thank you so much i appreciate that so much and yes the books always make a good gift for the holiday season so absolutely (laughs) um tell tell people um where they can find you online if they want to connect with you and dig into all of your great work oh definitely um right now my favorite platform is instagram um i just think you know it's the most fun so i'm the most active on there that's where all the good vibes are yeah exactly that handle is meredith yeager author um i have a website um meredithyeagerauthor.com um there you can find the links to my other books and the descriptions um but if you actually want to chat with me Instagram is the best one. Uh, Twitter, I'll just kind of retweet. I'm not as active. So yeah, come find me on Instagram, Meredith Yeager Author, or visit the website, MeredithYeagerAuthor.com. Excellent. We will put links to those in the show notes uh, as well for make it easy for people to find you. Meredith, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. Thank you so much, Hank. I had a great time chatting with you. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. They reverently slipped Jason's giant-size X-Men number one from its Mylar protector. Drinking in the sweet aroma of browning paper and three-color process that signals only the best and rarest and most wonderful of collectibles. On one page, Professor X raised his fingers to his temples and rallied his X-Men his psychic commands radiating from his bald head like waves off hot asphalt. I have psychic powers, Owen blurted. I want Wolverine's claws. Jason was turning a page. Snicked! Or, hey, get this, get this. Lightsabers poking out the backs of my hands. Or even, no, no, I'm totally serious. I have psychic powers. No, you don't. I do. Jason laid the comic on the bedspread. He sighed. Owen could be such a spaz sometimes. Okay, he said indulgently. What number am I thinking of? Stop, it doesn't work that way. What I can do is called a psychic reading, off an object, like getting impressions. When the doorbell rings, if I put my hand on the knob, as soon as I do, I know who's there. It's called looking through the peephole, moron. Shut up! And when I touch the phone, I know who's calling. I'm sure, Mr. Bullshit from Bullshit Mountain. Like my sister or my grandmother, I just know it's them. There's no such thing as psychics. Okay, you try. Don't be stupid. Are you chicken? Fine! Okay. He snatched up a brown paper bag, spotted with grease, and dumped a few stale french fries into the trash can. I'll put an object in this bag, and you try to guess what it is. Turn your back. Jason did and heard a rustling behind his head. Okay, you can look now. Owen produced the bag. It was rounded with some object now. Don't touch yet, just think. Try to imagine what's inside. Your lunch? Jason sneered, but he closed his eyes and tried to imagine. 
he could hear Owen's breathing. Chasen's nose itched. His brain grew bored with nothing to look at, and fragments of images swam in and out of his imagination. Strawberry, he blurted. Owen reached into the bag, producing a white bowl. Jason had eaten frosted flakes from it about three days ago. A few stuck to it, like little beige fish scales. See? I lose. No, look here. Owen pointed. A design went around the sides of the bowl. A long string of vines and painted fruit. With strawberries. That's... Jason began, but didn't know how to end the sentence. It's cool. See? What did I tell you? Do it again. Jason closed his eyes. An image like daisies and sun and... Yellow, he blurted after three seconds. Oh my god, open your eyes! Owen held a bright yellow highlighter pen. I hadn't even put it in the bag! And so they went, for thirty minutes or more. A staple remover, a toy soldier, a sweat sock, a pencil. Jason never said precisely what was in the bag, but it was always close or related. He'd imagine a cockpit, and Owen would produce a game controller. He'd say, plate, and the object would be a CD. He made right angles with his pointer fingers, shrugging, only to have Owen pull out Eliza's knitting needles. His friend became more and more enthusiastic, but Jason became a little scared. You have a real gift, Owen said. You're, like, brilliant. Owen babbled for a long time about astral projection and ESP, how Jason was picking up signals from Owen's own psychic powers, which had obviously been doing the broadcasting. Owen left that night full of plans and experiments, vindicated in his beliefs. Jason sat on the bed after Owen left, thinking hard. He had no explanation for what he'd done, but he knew he hadn't faked it. He couldn't believe, but he couldn't deny, either.